0: Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I am Mark Melton, your host and Providence Deputy Editor. After a hiatus over the summer, we are now launching the second season of the Provcast. This fall we will also update our website to include new content for our members and subscribers. Part of this content will include members-only podcasts. Subscriptions will, of course, include our regular quarterly print edition. The latest issue, the summer 2017 issue, number 8, will hit mailboxes soon if it hasn't already arrived. A couple of our feature articles will cover the issue of sexual espionage from a Christian perspective. Subscriptions are only $28 a year and can be purchased at ProvidenceMag.com slash subscribe. Now, in this episode, I will speak with Matt Gobush about his online article covering Latvia, Russia, and NATO. He focuses in on Russian-speaking residents in Latvia and makes the case for why Americans should be concerned about this issue. Moreover, he offers both hard power and soft power foreign policy recommendations. This topic is especially relevant now because last week Russia launched its mass 2017 military exercise in Belarus and Russia. While we recorded this episode a couple months ago, Matt spoke briefly about this exercise and why it is relevant for Latvia and the U.S. Gobush Bush served on the staff of the National Security Council in the Clinton White House, the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Senate, and the U.S. House of Representatives International Relations Committee. He also served as chairman of the Episcopal Church's Standing Commission on Anglican and International Peace with Justice Concerns. He currently works in the private sector and lives in Dallas, Texas with his wife and three internationally adopted children. If you enjoy the podcast or this episode, please share it on Facebook and review us on Apple Podcast. Thank you. Well, today we have Matt Gobush here with us again to talk about your recent trip to Latvia and to talk about a recent article that you wrote in the Providence Online edition talking about the Russian-speaking population in Latvia. First off, thank you very much for coming in and speaking with us. How did you get interested in this particular subject? Well, first, Mark, thank you for uh, having me again. Pleasure joining you again in the PROVCAST studio here in Washington,
1: and thanks for all good work you do with with Providence. What first got me interested in Latvia and the Baltics? Really family. My family's from that part of the world, and we have, my wife and I have added to our family through international adoption, including um, adopting three girls from Latvia. So that's really what the impetus for my interest, but it's really, couldn't help myself being there for an extended period of time during this process to really kind of immerse myself in the politics and the and the really interesting situation there
0: at a, at a really tense time. You focused mostly on your article about the population between the Russian speaking, you know, not citizens but persons in Latvia because they're not Latvian citizens, correct? Or how does that It's complicated. Right. It's very
1: complicated and it varies from state to state. I I'll, I'll speak to to Latvia. Basically, when Latvia regained its independence, was freed of of Soviet occupation in 1991, it decided upon a policy for citizenship that traced back to the situation in 1940 prior to the Soviet occupation at that time. And so all those that were born and, and lived in Latvia prior to 1940 and their descendants were considered citizens. Those that had arrived later, later than 1940, which are predominantly Russians, were relocated during in you know, a policy of sort of Russification by Stalin and his successors in the Baltics were upon independence were not granted full citizenship they were granted this non citizen status so currently it started a small number and the numbers actually kind of increased over time and today there's approximately you know 25% of the country is ethnic Russian large portion of which are non citizens it's a sizable minority has really been create some really complicated politics domestically within Latvia and and really goes to the, uh, the core of their national identity, how to relate with its Russian minority. To simply uh, offer carte blanche citizenship to all those that are within the borders would seem to many Latvians to uh, legitimize the occupation, right? These were, as they see it, Russians that were um, not true Latvians that were relocated. Also, a big part of the national identity of Latvia, and this is a country of only two million people, approximately, is their language. And they have a very unique language. It's very different than Russian, and it, they fear it's in it's threatened to um, become extinct. And they really see that as a core aspect of their national identity. So the the Russian speaking aspect of this, if they were to legitimize all those Russian speakers in the country, it could potentially uh, undermine
0: the prevalence of, of their language and they see it as their national identity. So it's a it's a really, it's a tough issue. Mm-hmm. And are most of these Russian-speaking Latvians, are they on the border with Russia or did Russia kind of place them in different parts of the country or are they you know, spread out more evenly?
1: Well, they're pri- primarily along the border areas. Daugavpils, which is near the Russian border, is a center of, of ethnic Russian life, but Riga is too. Riga is very much in the center of the country and many Russian uh, Soviet military uh, skilled workers were brought to Riga in the center of the country. And in fact, Riga is approximately 50%. Number one, it's about, I think, I believe last count, seven to 800,000 people. So it's a sizable portion of the entire population of the country is in Riga. And of that population, about half are Russian speaking. So I wouldn't say it's dispersed and spread out. Many of the rural areas are 100% ethnic Latvian. But it does, they nonetheless have, uh, the Russian minority is not simply relegated to sort of ghettos, you know, in various parts of the country. They are immersed in the the national life of Latvia,
0: even though many of them do not enjoy the uh, franchise, do not participate in public life officially. How is life different for the Russian speakers living in Latvia? compared to regular Latvians? Like what are some of the different legal challenges they may face? And what uh, also kind of a follow-up question to that, how do the you know, regular traditional Latvians view the Russian speaking? Uh, good question. I'm not, I can't say
1: I'm a, uh, um, a naturalization, Lat- Latvian naturalization lawyer, although I'll play one online. The, uh, but my understanding is for, in many respects, life is no different this is an apartheid South Africa, right? These are uh, the, the Russian-speaking, ethnic Russian population, non-citizens within Russia are indistinguishable from many Latvians. It's, it's very sort of visibly integrated. But below the surface, there are some key differences. Russian, ethnic Russian non-citizens in Latvia are discriminated in a sense, not only in being denied the vote in municipal elections and other elections, but also There have been a movement within Latvia to ensure that public schools were 60% Latvian curricula, right, and Latvian-speaking curricula. So you have in these majority dense Russian ethnic areas of Latvia are being, a sense, they're unable to learn Russian in the schools to the extent that they'd like to. And so there's that feeling of second-class status having said that there's also some interesting sort of benefits of being a non-citizen number one you do have the ability to travel you have a latvian passport a non-citizen passport that enables you to travel throughout the eu At the same time many russian ethnic russians retain their russian passport so they can travel throughout russia so they've got a um they're exempt from military service um so there's you know it's it's sort of a, a mixed bag i think but i think one important reality though is the information space in latvia there is a Within Latvia, the uh, Russian-speaking media is really limited to Russian sources, to sources from within Russia. So many of Russians in Latvia are getting their news and their information from Moscow, not from Riga. And part of that is a systematic effort to promote the Latvian language rather than the Russian language, but it really has handicapped or slowed some of that integration
0: and become, become an irritant. So in addition to uh, this domestic situation going on in Latvia, you also have Latvia being a part of NATO, and so that then causes a lot of other issues for the United States with Article 5 and so forth. So what are some of your views and lessons that you took away from your trip and your research on this? Primary sort of lesson that
1: I learned is that the domestic political situation in Latvia and in the Baltic countries, being frontline states as they are, matters to U.S. national security interests. Uh, there is an important connection there. You know, there's predictions that if the Russians were to attempt, if the Putin regime were to attempt something, aggression of some kind, it would be targeted towards these states. These are the sort of vulnerable, I mean, you have to remember Latvia, for instance, is one of the smallest countries in the world, and it's bordering the largest country in the world. And that that sort of asymmetry is uh, almost an inherent imbalance and a and a threat that, that they feel, and they feel insecure in that respect. And that creates, a I think, a really tense situation, especially in light of Russia's actions in, in Crimea and in the Donbas region of Ukraine. So put all those things together and you have a tense situation there on the front line. These are those frontline states, probably the most vulnerable ones and ones where the United States has made that security guarantee. You know, the Trump administration has wavered a bit on that perhaps, hasn't made that as been as vocal, but the fact is we are treaty partners, treaty allies with these Baltic states, so obligating us to uh, come to their defense if they were, were attacked. So we have a stake there. NATO has certainly realized that and has acted proactively to deploy additional uh, battle groups to these states, and that's important, but they're for the most part not, they're necessary, but not sufficient. Their tripwire forces, relatively small, couldn't truly stop an invasion, and for that reason need to are are not a part of the solution, but not the entire solution. I argue that a part of the solution is finding ways to better integrate the Russian speaking population within Latvia, within Latvian politics to provide less of a pretext for Putin to take some kind of aggressive move there in defense of their so-called kin in Latvia. Mm -hmm. How big is Latvia's military? Did you run it's minuscule. It really is. I mean, I think they have like 15,000 active duty. It's, it's very small. Mm-hmm. It does depend heavily on us. I will say, though, to those that argue that, and some within the Trump administration have argued, what's the value to Americans for this sort of security relationship when we're obviously making a much, much greater contribution to their security than they are to ours, is that the Latvian military, they're small, but they're fierce, right, and have been quick to volunteer to participate in UN peacekeeping missions around the world things that frankly Americans the American military is sort of hesitant to do so you will find despite being a relatively small military Latvian soldiers sailors airmen others are deployed in Africa in Asia uh, in the Middle East and participating actively in these so there is a sense that that the baltics feel that they need to pull their own weight i think in also their defense contributions they're not at the 2% yet but they're moving you know, smartly in that direction. And that I think is, that, that's important to understand. They are contributing something in mm-hmm. return for the kind of security guarantees that
0: we're providing mm-hmm. Providing them. I'm not sure. I think you might've already mentioned the RAND Corporation study, but would you like to kind of give like an overview of what that study found?
1: Sure. A bit of a landmark study, the
0: RAND Corporation in California had done some war gaming,
1: looked at the situation after the Crimea crisis and Ukraine to see what potential situation might unfold in the Baltics had done the wargaming and came to the conclusion that due to their, if there were essentially three methods by which the Russians could destabilize the Baltics. One was through conventional force, in which case, you know, they do have that sort of local superiority. They could, they could mount a pretty robust invasion with the forces nearby, covert action, and also nonviolent subversion, which is really in that propaganda information space. And Rand included that kind of a hybrid of those things, that combination of things, meant that the Russians could potentially reach Riga in 60 hours from an invasion, could quickly kind of overwhelm. Now, that was a study from two years ago, I believe, that NATO has since bolstered its forces in the region, but it still would be relatively, potentially relatively quick. Mm-hmm. So that was Rand's conclusion. And they too, although they note the limits that the United States and other NATO allies have in influencing the domestic politics of Latvia and the other
0: Baltic countries, they do argue to better integrate the Russian-speaking population. And also, whenever I hear this topic brought up, there's talk about how not poking the bear too much and the idea of, uh, if we mass troops on this border here. But the counter argument that is like, the troop levels here that I'm, we're talking about is not enough to invade Russia. So Russia should not feel a military threat from this presence. But it should be enough that if Russia did want to invade, they would have to mass up more troops. And if they did that, then we could hopefully, you know, reinforce the ones that are there. At least that's one of the arguments. It's my
1: understanding, It's a good point, Mark. I mean, my, it's my understanding too, you know, NATO is careful in how it's deploying these troops within Latvia, right? Not stationing NATO troops within these population centers where ethnic Russians are because it does potentially cause that kind of tension and give a propaganda tool for Moscow to use, right? Mm-hmm. Because to Russians within these countries, a thousand troops doesn't sound like a lot to us. It's a lot to them, you know, in that environment and could be seen as threatening mm-hmm. and misinterpreted as being threatening. So ran proposed or recommended and i believe nato has filed the recommendation to deploy them not in those population centers but elsewhere okay. strategic locations but not within you know densely populated russian ethnic russian mm-hmm. uh, areas i mean it's hard enough when we have troops in japan and uh, yeah, okinawa right. and all no that it, there. it creates its own a, a dynamic that can
0: can be um, can sometimes aggravate tensions rather than reduce them mm-hmm. Before we started recording, you were talking about a military exercise that Russia will be doing in September. So what's this operation and why should we be concerned about it? The Russians have announced this. It's been in the planning for quite some time.
1: NATO is fully aware. Um, these kinds of drills are quite typical. This one is the Russians have called Zapad, which means West, and it, it with somewhat of an ominous name in a sense. and it. Contemplates apparently, you know, quite a, an amassment, you know, involvement, quite a lot of Russian forces near the border with the Baltics. You know, that that's obviously a situation where you know tensions will be at a high, and how we manage that is really important. The deployment of NATO troops to the region, I think, is helpful in that respect, but it, it's something to watch very carefully and something that we have to be, you know, on high alert for. The Russians have apparently been known at times to, in addition to their announced drill, to also at the same time at the last minute, conduct a snap drill that kind of adds to the tensions and involves more troops. But here too, I think it's it's important to, certainly not to, to be prepared, but not to overreact. And I think that's a, again, that's an
0: area we've got to watch closely uh, this September. Mm-hmm. And is the purpose of these sudden changes just to frustrate the you know Western troops who are there? Or do you think there might be legitimate reasons why they might want to do it or? Anyone's guess, okay. anyone's guess. But there's also the risk that this could be a pretense to invasion. Is that right? Is that the main concern? That's always
1: the risk. That's always the concern in a situation like this. And that's why there are protocols that um, NATO and Russia have have negotiated to reduce the likelihood and to announce these things well in advance and to be transparent about those drills and exercises. But that's that's always the that's always the risk. I mean, how did the First World War start? It was you know mobilizing troops prior you know near the borders and kind of raising tensions in a way that that led to kind of a domino effect and so that's clearly what NATO is seeking to avoid and we would hope that Russians are too
0: so in addition to the hard power there's also the soft power side and with the soft power I think we can probably throw in the propaganda I think some people may look at propaganda a little bit differently than soft power I once heard think someone called RT, not a soft power tool, but a coercive power tool, which I felt like is kind of splitting hairs on the name a little bit. But how does Russia's soft power influence this region? And how does the United States respond to this or Latvia and you know Europe in general? Right, I mean I think it, it has a, a
1: profound effect and I, I felt it there when I was in Latvia that Russian news organizations, broadcast companies have been pretty effective in their ability to dominate the Russian speaking information space within these con- con- uh, countries and to produce you know high quality programming with a clear sort of editorial angle that is no doubt influential. and also in the in the cyber arena right latvia and the other baltic states are extremely are very digital oriented actually my understanding is that these countries have perhaps some of the best internet connectivity rates in the entire world right so they're they're very much they live online to to a large degree and so that those kinds of tactics some of which you know are the us intelligence community claims that the russians aimed at the united states are also being used in these areas and that creates a, a situation where you can imagine when you're when you're provided only just one sort of source of information, um, you tend to believe it, right? Uh, and I alluded to this earlier because um, of Latvia's interest in promoting the Latvian language, they've been hesitant to fully fund some of the more you know Russian-speaking outlets, and that's made it difficult. NATO has stood up a strategic communications um, operation in Riga, and with the intent of sort of monitoring this activity, but really is a kind of a listening post, and and isn't really. Able to respond, not doesn't have the mandate to respond. In some respects, you know, we're we're fighting with one hand tied behind our back in this area, in that sort of information space, and
0: uh, you know, it's it's it, it can have a really important impact. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we uh, talked so much about how do the current Russian speakers in these countries view the Russian regime itself. I can't say that I personally was able to assess that
1: to degree. I think that, frankly, there was probably more talk not of Putin but of Trump during my time there and what kind of signals and mixed signals it might be getting from from the United States and from NATO. I do think that there is a presumably kind of a natural sympathy with the Russian people, right? But there is too, I think, just as in many urban areas of Russia, organized resistance. and And Putin, despite his you know, popularity nationwide does have his opponents as well, and I think some of those opponents are within, you know, the Russian-speaking portions of of these Baltic countries. So, in my understanding, too, and Rand reported that they, the, the Baltic leaders suspect that the Russians tried to test this kind of covertly at one point, trying to sense where the were met with little sympathy. So, you know, part of this could be over. The reality, the reality is this the. the it may not be as vulnerable or susceptible to sort of Russian infiltration as as we might think, but the the perception and that perception game and how that raises the sort of you know in a tense situation where the the security guarantee is in question that contributes to rising tensions and kind of creates a dynamic of its own. The perception of whether or not you know Russian speaking. Latvians are somehow a fifth column for Putin or something like that those sort of misperceptions and I think that's where a role like Ushakov can play and kind of allaying those concerns as he has and and making clear he's a loyal Latvian are are important because Mm -hmm. it's that in that information space and in that uh, perceptions uh, Game that it's uh, really important to be sending the right signals
0: Mm -hmm. So one way that I think we could see this Russian population being used by the Russian regime is through uh, almost a pretense of we're protecting these people even if those people don't want protecting. And I think we could even see you know, in the same way that in Ukraine, you all of a sudden you have all these Ukrainians who are absolutely against Russia where they might have been sympathetic before but it doesn't really matter in the sense because Russia's there. And so that's one way I can see this going down. Another way, which I think is perhaps I don't know what probability you would put on different scenarios, but to me the more likely scenario is that Russia could use this to destabilize the country without actually invading with any troops, even with little green men or basically a hybrid force that can, you know, claim it's not really Russian and it's local like in the Donbass and so forth. But in other words, trying to use this population to make democracy look bad, and because if democracy looks bad, then it becomes less tempting for the you know Russian opposition of the Russian people to think, hey, we might want to do this. And if, because if those people thought, hey, we could do this, we could implement this, we could have reforms, because we're not that different from these other Eastern European countries. If they can do it, we can do it, then they can kick out the oligarchs and Putin. And that, I think, is probably the biggest existential threat that Russia regime faces. And I think that really explains why, you know, Ukraine was invaded, you know, when they were talking about signing an agreement with the EU. That's an excellent point, Mark.
1: And I think you're right to, to point to that this is not just a, a territorial issue. This is a, a an ideological issue to a degree. And, and the question is, can democracy in what is really shaping up to be a kind of a, a you know, battle royale between democracy and autocracy worldwide you know this is in a sense the front line and the degree to which the forces of autocracy can undermine democracy I- even in, in, in these small arenas but they're very symbolic I think um, can have a broad effect I think and, and I think a key part of democracy and this is this is, I think helpful in reflecting on our own democracy is the protection of minorities and and the idea that a democracy is multicultural and, and you know equality is a key part of, of you know democratic principles. And when you have a resident minority that is seen as second-class citizens, that's antithetical to sort of democratic norms generally, right? And so this is a, a test of can a, can a democracy maintain its national identity and also integrate and protect minorities within that country. That again takes us back to the domestic situation, the importance of that for the sort of the broader uh, international dynamic mm-hmm. so what are your policy recommendations well I do make in the blog post uh, you know a combination of hard and soft power I do think you know uh, NATO's forward presence there is important and needs to be maintained I think that there is an opportunity with its strategic communications operation there too to be uh, more forceful in its information sharing and to into de- developing Russian-speaking channels in these in these areas, not just Latvian-speaking channels. And, you know, I think from the perspective of domestic politics, and this is a recommendation that I offer with all due respect to the the, uh, the sovereignty of Latvia, but that there may be an opportunity to do just as the Latvian parliament did with uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov. Mikhail Baryshnikov was a ballet dancer, many of my generation might know, uh, who had a uh, Russian, uh, was one of the greats, he defected, ultimately led the American Ballet Theater, but he was uh, recently recognized by the Latvian parliament as a Latvian citizen and for his extraordinary merits. And he was exempt from the language tests and the rest. They wanted to honor him with this. He was uh, born in Riga and had fond memories from Riga, but had been a a Russian, part of the occupation forces at the time. And so that symbolism is important. And the question is, can that symbolism be translated further to offer more Russian non-citizens the opportunity to naturalize and not just those with extraordinary merit, but those with ordinary merit, right? Not just the Mikhail but any that, to make it easier for, for them to become Latvian citizens. Because that's, that's ultimately, I think, the solution from a soft power standpoint
0: to, to decrease the, the tensions in, uh, uh, in this part of the world. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate you uh, writing for us about Latvia and all the other articles you've written and also coming in and talking to us. Paldius, that's Latvian for thank you. So thank
1: you for for, for hosting us.
0: And I'll go back and learn how to say you're welcome in Latvian. And I'll <laughs> that I that don't that know. Is. Yeah. <laughs>